So we are finishing up our series in First Thessalonians. I mean, sorry, Second Thessalonians. We've already looked at First Thessalonians. We're now at the very tail end of Second Thessalonians. Um, and I know that we took a little break for uh, Palm Sunday and Easter, and so it's kind of strange to jump back in and then to end. Um, uh, but, you know, that's all right. Uh, we're going to look at this passage, and it's not an easy passage either. It's, it's, a, it's a challenging passage. It's a convicting passage, um, but it is God's word for us today. And I want to give a little bit of a recap of where we are uh, in uh, this little letter to uh, Second Thessalonians, uh, to Paul, uh, from Paul to the Thessalonian church here in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. You'll remember... Um, that we looked at this issue. It was an issue that they had. There were false teachers in, in Thessalonica, in the church even, in, Thessalon- in, the, in the Thessalonian church, who were teaching that the Lord Jesus Christ had already returned, that there was no judgment to come. And so the Apostle Paul writes them and says, no, in fact, there is judgment coming on account of uh, lawlessness and sin, and the lawless one, uh, the, Christ has not yet returned, and he won't return until the lawless one comes. And even now, there's a spirit of lawlessness that is at work. Uh, this is chapters 1 and 2. And then he says, but you stand firm and give thanks to the Lord, reminding them that they are uh, the first fruits whom God chose to be saved, and that by their sanctification, um, that they... Uh, would continue to grow and be steadfast. And then he asked for prayer. That was our last sermon. Paul asks for prayer in the beginning of chapter 3, that the word of the Lord might spread, that it might go out. And now he seems to take a jump. He says, all right, let me talk about idleness. Let me talk about work. Um, It seems like a leap, but I hope by the end of our sermon today, you'll see that it fits, that it flows from the rest of this text. But before we get there, let's read. We're going to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 to the end of the book, to the end of the little letters, 6 to the end. Hear God's word. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. But don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. 
I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The Great Resignation. I don't know if you follow the news or the talking heads, um, but this was a descriptive title given to the large reduction in the workforce over the last two years during COVID. Pundits and other talking heads told us that people were leaving the workforce in droves because they came to realize during their forced homestay how little they liked their job. Um, Some left their jobs for new pursuits. Others just left the workforce altogether. Now, whether that resignation uh, has since turned into remorse, I'm, I'm not one to say. I don't know what will happen in the job market. Um, but COVID certainly gave many people uh, a chance to evaluate themselves, their lives. Uh, why do I do what I do? Or even more fundamentally, is the working life really for me? Or even more fundamentally, why do I exist? What is my purpose? And maybe you found yourself asking those questions, reevaluating your life. Well, Scripture has a lot to say about work. In fact, in Genesis 1, which I've alluded to, begins with work. It begins with the work of God in creation, and then it examines man's work. It looks at the effect of the fall to that work. The Proverbs that we read earlier speak as well to work. Here we see again the Apostle Paul turning his attention to the issue of work. And as we come to our text this morning, I think at first blush, it seems like a reinforcement of the idea that of this Protestant work ethic. I'm not making a critique on the Protestant work ethic. I'm just pointing it out. Maybe this is sort of the grounds for it, the, the underlying uh, stuff of it. Work is good. We're made for it. We reflect our creator in it. We fulfill God's calling for us through it. But I want us to take a little bit closer look at the text. Well, it certainly addresses work. I think it addresses something else more significant, more fundamental. It addresses our hearts, and in particular, it addresses the heart of one who refuses to work, yes, but really one who refuses to follow God. Now, we're going to see that here. It's not about the work per se. The work is significant. It's important. But it's really about our heart attitude toward God, our creator, the one who made us. The issue is, is not work, work per se here in Second Thessalonians, but rather whether one works or refuses to work, but whether or not we submit ourselves to the will of God. You'll remember back in chapter 2 that there was this issue of lawlessness. The lawless one would come, and lawlessness is ongoing, and that lawlessness and the lawless one would sort of expose those who realized didn't follow God but followed their own desires. In a way, this this issue of work gets at the heart issue of lawlessness, of do I follow God? Or do I follow my own desires? The good news, 
as we look at our hearts and wonder, uh, is this me? Am I like these people here who refuse to work? Do I struggle with work? Do I neglect work? There's grace in the warning that we find in Second Thessalonians. And here's what I want us to hear. Don't grow weary in doing good, for the Lord of peace is with you. Okay? So there's a warning. Don't grow weary in doing good. And the grace for the Lord of peace is with you. And we'll look at this just in two parts. And the first thing that we're going to look at is, is this idea that lawlessness is loafing, or loafing is lawlessness. Uh, this is maybe my kind of attempt at using alliteration, but loafing, right? What is it to loaf? Uh, to loaf around is to sit around and do nothing and just be idle. Now, I've already talked about the context, and I just remind you of the context. This idea of lawlessness, I think, permeates or runs through our text. It was a particular issue that the Thessalonian church was facing. Um, Remember, there was no hope of the resurrection. That's what the false teachers taught. Um, You remember that they were already living, if you were, in the time of Jesus' reign. And so the, the argument went something like this. Well, if Christ has already returned, there's no judgment to come. Why am I bothering to work? This is, we're ushering in the eschaton. We're ushering in the last times. Let's just live and, and, and exist and rejoice. And we'll let others care about work stuff. But we, God's people, can just sit back and relax. Tied to this, not just work, but is this problem of we don't have to worry about judgment. The law and obedience to Christ is not a concern because there is no judgment to come. This is why I think Paul is addressing this issue. There was false teaching that some in the church had bought into. And it was causing them to sit back, relax, and not do anything. Now, it's interesting, this word idle. Um, You'll notice in the ESV it says, uh, if you have another translation, it may say something different, but it says in verse 6, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. And again, in the very next verse, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. And then if you jump down a little further, down to verse 11, it says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Um, that word idle uh, is probably not the, it's definitely not, not the most literal translation. It's probably maybe not the best translation, but I'll, I'll explain why I think uh, the ESV and some other translations use it. But the, the word actually is the word for disorderliness or unruliness disorderliness or unruliness. And here, I think the ESV and some other translations use this idea of idleness because that's the type of disorderliness and, uh, and unruliness that we see in our text, in our context. And so they kind of bring out the, 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 the sort of force of it. But it is the expression of a heart that rebels against the rule of God. One who doesn't follow God's 
order, right? So disorder, unruliness. If God commands, this is how you ought to live, it is saying, I don't want to live that way. I want to live the way I want to live. And we get this, I think, pretty clearly in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. In other words, another way to put that is not in accord with God's command, right? Because the Apostle Paul, when they came to Thessalonica and they taught, when they preached, they said, this is the way, this is the path of righteousness, walk in it. And they were refusing, the the group of people who were being idle or disorderly were saying, I don't need to obey. And we know that the Apostle Paul addressed this particular issue of idleness because later on uh, he said that they had, they had already instructed them. For even when we were, verse 10, even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But I, but I just want to show that this disorderliness, this unruliness, was not fundamentally about not working. Not working was the, the, the manifestation the manifestation of their unwillingness to follow God and His law. It was lawlessness, which was the issue that Paul was addressing throughout this book. I want to take a minute for us and contemplate in our lives how being idle You can use other words, lazy, loafing, I don't know. You can come up with other words. Is, in fact, lawlessness. First, I think there's a very important distinction that I I need to make before we go any farther. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, it says, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That was the command that Paul had given. And I want us to just focus in on those words, not willing. There are many, many reasons why someone might not be able to work. This is important for us to hear. Being without a job can be an excruciatingly painful experience, one that is often compounded um, by many debilitating factors. For example, disability, abandonment by a spouse or a family member, Child care. Can't do it all. Some sort of personal trauma in someone's life. There are many other reasons. And I want to be careful here. The text should not be wielded against those in desperate need. Each case of need ought to be taken on its own terms with all attenuating circumstances taken into account. And our impulse, our very first impulse ought always to be to move towards the person in need, to care for them. Not, well, they're just lazy. Why should I help? Because to be honest, that's just an excuse not to work, right? Like if I, if I see somebody in need and I, and I turn, oh, they're just lazy. I don't need to help. What I'm really saying is I'm too busy 
or I'm too important. It's like the story of the Good Samaritan, right? The, the religious leaders walk by on the other side. It's because I'm idle, actually. It's actually because I am disorderly. I am rejecting God's, God's call on my heart and life to care for those in need. So I just want to be really clear. The text is dealing with those not who are in desperate need, but those who are refusing to work because they believe they don't need to. They've bought into a false teaching. And because at root, they don't want to obey God. Remember those words. They are not willing. It's not that they are not able. It's not that they have situation or circumstance that put them in a tough place. It's that they are not willing. Now, after having made this distinction, I think it's important to wrestle with our hearts here for a little bit. Maybe it's not likely for you all here in West Hartford, Connecticut, in a very sort of affluent New England culture where we work hard and we you know, make a way and a path for ourselves, and, and many, many of us uh, don't struggle. Some of us do, but many of us don't. And so, as we're sitting here uh, thinking about this, maybe your attitude toward work is not a desire to just loaf around and be idle. But let me ask this secondary question. What is your attitude toward work? God made man in his image to reflect himself as the creator. He gave the mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. He set Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. He told him to name the animals and he created Eve as the helpmate to accomplish that good work. Of course, in his own lawlessness, in his own idleness, rather than doing the work of keeping the garden, that word for keep is the same work for guard. It was the word that was used to talk about the, the, um, the Levites who would guard the temple. It's the same language there to keep the temple. They were to guard the temple. Instead of doing his due diligence, what does Adam do? He lets Satan into the garden, and he not only doesn't stop the mouth of Satan, but he listens to the mouth of Satan. He eats the forbidden fruit, he and Eve. And after the fall, the land was cursed. Childbearing was cursed. And so no longer was work simply the delight of reflecting God's creative work, but it became toil. It was thorns and thistles. Uh, I'm not a gardener. Uh, I would say uh, my wife is a gardener. She loves the garden. Uh, she, uh, my mom is a very gifted gardener. Justina, I, she's a wonderful gardener. And I'm always amazed what they can produce. But when I go into the garden... All I see are thorns and thistles, and every time I try to do something, I think I just make things worse. Nothing seems to grow. That little picture, of course, is a direct result of the fall. Ever since we've had a fraught relationship with the world we live in, and with work in particular. Now, it remains good. It's part of our image bearing. We go out into the world. We do good work. And yet, I'm guessing for many of you, work is difficult. Is it? That's difficult for me. I love you all, but this is, it can be hard work. 
don't always wake up every Sunday morning like, ah, here we go. <laughs> many, many times I do, but oftentimes I'm like, oh, man, I got I to gotta talk. I got to speak. I got to think. I got to care for people. Like my mind gets overwhelmed with the challenges that, that, is, that, that we face. We go to work on Monday mornings just a little bit tired, don't we? A little bit drained. And sometimes we just want to do our own thing or not do anything. We don't want to be told we have to or we must. We don't like bosses telling us what to do. And as bosses, we don't want to have to manage our employees. We want to, don't want to tell them what to do. This is all direct result of the fall. The curse is found in the thorns and the thistles, the inherent difficulty of the labor as a result of that curse. But part of the curse is our unwillingness to root out the thorns and the thistles. We come up to the thorn or the thistle or the weed and we say, nah, <laughs> there's too many. I look, at a, I look at a garden and there's a thousand weeds. I'm thinking, just let it go. What's the point? It'll just grow back. I think we have to be honest with ourselves about our work habits. Are we loafers? Do we cut corners? Are we seeking our pleasure first? Is every moment spent in work trying to get out of it? Do we busy ourselves with things that don't matter while leaving the difficult and important tasks undone? Do we procrastinate? Now, some of you are sitting there, and you're thinking, no, that's not me. I'm a workaholic. I love work. I live for work. I'm driven. This sermon really doesn't have anything to do with me. I got nothing to worry about. But let me ask, what work are you neglecting? How is your family life? Have you invested in your spouse? Have you invested in your children? How is your service in the church? I'm going to stop right here and do a little aside as a church. We need to think about this. I hear about babies over here. You're cooing, baby. Very cute. But oftentimes, we have the same few people doing nursery every single week. We put out calls for people to come and help serve. In the, but that's not the kind of work I do. I do other work. I don't do babies. Just challenge Challenge us on this. What's our service in the church look like? How about your service to God in terms of caring and worshiping and loving and growing and knowing God? What does that look like? Notice here in verse 13, it says, don't grow weary in doing good. Paul's writing in the context of the church He's writing with the idea that they would not cease to obey God and His Word. But I think Paul is also saying something about work. Our vocation is important. What you do for a living is important. It reflects God's creative act. Uh, It is why we were put here on this earth to, to be His ambassadors in this world, to do work, to cultivate, to grow, to create, to investigate, to explore. God made us for that. That's wonderful. But that is not our ultimate vocation. 
You are called firstly to be a follower of Jesus. Does your work ethic, your workaholic nature, get in the way of that greater vocation? Following Jesus. Don't miss the warning Paul is giving. Our work habits reflect our hearts. Our loafing and our unruliness, our disorderliness, our idleness isn't a small matter. Notice Paul's warning and how the church is to handle the disorderly in their midst. Did you notice? Keep away from any brother. That seems a little harsh, Paul. Are you saying if somebody's just loafing around that I, I have to shun them? I have to ignore them? I have to treat them as if they don't exist? I don't think so. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I think there's maybe two reasons or two sort of ways to think about this. Uh, one is somewhat practical and, and prudential, and the other is more theological. Uh, the first, the practical reason like any sin, like any lawlessness, if it is allowed to live and thrive, if it's overlooked and ignored, if it's sort of coddled and, and contained, it will grow and spread in the life of a body. We see this in, in churches all the time. A certain sin just goes left untouched. Everybody just ignores it, acts like that, and they just treat the person as if it's perfectly fine. And what happens is that sin spreads. I sadly walk read, you know, in the news of, you know, certain mega church that within the context of the leadership, rampant sexual sin. Not just with one person, but it spread throughout the culture of the organization, the church. How tragic. Don't be naive about your own heart. This is the, pra- the practical wisdom component. When you permit lawless and disorderliness amongst your brothers and sisters, you'll soon find yourself falling into a similar sin. Keep away, meaning call your friends to repent and don't indulge them with their idleness. Don't be like, I'll, I'll come chill with you. I'll be idle too. Notice that rather than being busy, what happens to them? Rather than doing their work, what do they do? They become busy bodies. Notice this in verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. What's a busy body? We looked at this in uh, our first letter to the Thessalonians. He addressed this topic very, very uh, shortly. In this one, he's expanded it out more. But this idea of being busy body is getting involved in other people's business. It's like making yourself sort of, I've got, I, I, forget my work, I want to get involved in whatever you're doing, and I want to get involved with you, and I want to talk about what so-and-so is doing, and I want to gossip over here. And I think what the Apostle Paul is saying is, don't involve yourself in that. It just pulls you into it. Soon you will be a busybody, and you'll be running around getting involved in other people's business as well. A busybody is one who neglects their own duties, goes and involves themselves in other people's business. Paul's saying, don't let them. Don't engage in the gossip. Don't engage in the idle talk. Walk away. Paul not only says, keep away from them, but he takes it upon himself to rebuke them directly. Notice here in verse 12, he says, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. 
And then he instructs the church to exercise discipline. Notice verses 14 to 16. He says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. You see, this is the theological side. If the practical side is, don't get, don't get enmeshed with somebody who's sinning because you'll just end up sinning too. Like, don't, don't engage yourself in that. But the other side is theological. Have a concern for the well-being of that person who is caught in sin. Restore them. Help them. Encourage them. Instruct them. And this is very, very important because if we go back to chapter 2, we look at this man of lawlessness and the lawlessness that is sort of ongoing and pervasive. You'll remember what it said at the end of chapter 2, which was really disturbing, or end of uh, that section in chapter 2. It says this, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This is the end result of this uh, unruliness, of this lawlessness, of this idleness. So when you think about your brother or sister and you recognize that what they're doing is just wrong and they're neglecting the work that God has set them to, help them. Talk to them. Come alongside them. Encourage them. Remind them of God's truth, that he calls them to work to the glory of God with fear and trembling. But this leads me to my second point and final point and hopeful, hopefully my encouragement to you because up to this point, it's been all law, right? It's been all heavy-handed. Let me tell you about how our hearts are broken, that we are by nature people who want to, 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 to not do what we've been given as a responsibility. But that's not the end of the story. And, and so I want to look a little deeper at the grace that we see in our text. First, I think a cursory reading, reading of our text, it does seem pretty harsh. seems like shunning. But Paul very carefully uses the language of brother. They are deceived family members, led astray by false teachers. That's the context that Paul's speaking to. These brothers and sisters who are following this teacher who said Jesus has already returned, live how you want to live, it doesn't really matter, are deceived. Show them grace by, by restoring them, by calling them out that they might feel uncomfortable with the weight of God's wrath hanging over them, but that they might repent and believe and find grace. Restore them. That's the, one of the main reasons of discipline. There's a few other reasons. The glory of Christ, the good of the church, but it is for the restoration of the sinner. They need to know the danger they're in. Warn them as a brother. But then there's another piece here that I, that I think is a little less obvious that we see God's grace, and that is in Paul's example. 
You notice here that Paul says, we didn't come to you, or, or when we came to you, we worked. We worked hard. We worked day and night. We, didn't, we paid for whatever food that we had, and we did all of that to set an example to you. We wanted you to know what it looked like to follow Jesus and to, to, to do all that we do to the glory of God with all our being. Now, how is there grace in that? Well, Paul, how can we ever live up to you, right? How could anybody live up to the Apostle Paul? That just seems like a, like a, a, a scale that is much too high. But I want us to notice that I think the Apostle Paul is actually not setting himself up as an example. Look at me. I'm so good. But rather he's saying to them, look how I came to you and didn't abuse you. How I cared for you. How I served you. How I worked for you. And I think he's doing this in in, in contrast to the false teachers. And this was very typical of the false teachers. They would come into town they would say, I have got some secret knowledge for you. You, you. Paul says that, but I've got something else. Jesus has already come back, and I'll tell you more if you give me some food. If you pay me, I'll tell you the secrets of heaven. Right? So Paul is actually saying here, listen, this is the way of Christ, the way of service, the way of love. I came to you and didn't take from you but I gave to you. And of course, Christ is the example par excellence, the best example when you think about what Christ has done. Notice here at the very end, we have this blessing that that Paul prays for uh, the, the Thessalonians. He says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. When we think about the Lord Jesus, if there was anybody who could have sat back on his laurels and not do anything at all and enjoy all glory and all pleasure, it was him. When he was in the wilderness, he was tempted by Satan saying, you know, you can make it all go away in the blink of an eye. We can turn this bread into this stone into bread. We can command the angels to come to your rescue, we can, we, can, we, can get, we can get away from this suffering. We can get away from this service. We can get away from this work. You don't have to go through it. The Lord Jesus said, no. My job, my work, is to do the will of my Father in heaven. And what was that work? That work was to make peace. That work was to bring a relationship between us and the creator who made us. You see, in our own rebellion and sin, we said to God, we don't need you. Thus bringing upon ourselves the curse and all that that entailed, the very wrath of God for our sin. And we deserve death for our rebellion. And Christ said, let me do the work. Let me come and let me serve. Let me lay down my life for you that you might be at rest, that you might have peace with the living God. He didn't get to the cross and say, oh, far enough. I'm going to let this cup pass me by. 
He prayed, this work is more than I can bear, Lord. May this cup pass me by, but not my will, but yours be done. So what is our response to this? All praise and glory be to the one who worked for our salvation and did not consider that great glory that he had in heaven something to be held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He suffered and he died that we might have life and have peace and have security and have ultimate rest. There is a day when that labor of this life will be done. And because Jesus labored for us, we have that hope of rest. As we consider what it means for us to work to the glory of God, consider the work of Jesus for you. Let's pray.